He's foretelling of the coming judgment that is to be brought by God upon the houses of Israel and Judah for rejecting God and His law. He brings God's indictment against the people in chapter 2. In chapter 3, He talks about the corruption within the priests, the prophets, and the princes. The leadership in the land was also corrupted. And any time the leadership in the land is corrupted, it usually filters down to the people. And that's what we see in Micah's day is this corruption at all levels. The people are covetous. They're devising evil upon their bed. When the morning comes, they exercise it. And the the leadership in the land, spiritual leadership, civil leadership is all out of whack. And the Bible says that they were corrupted by money. They wanted to be paid for their prophecies. They wanted to be paid for their judgments. They wanted to be uh, given all this money that they coveted after, allowing them to buy lands, taking people's heritage away, which was a big deal with God, taking that away, using it for their own good. And, And now God says, I've had enough. Get right or judgment is coming. And here in uh, chapter 5, we have this wonderful prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen throughout this book how Micah talks of judgment and he talks of deliverance. And then it goes back to judgment, back to deliverance. And and we've seen that throughout. And we're seeing that here even in chapter 5. And we've already spent four weeks now considering the first five verses of chapter 5. And while in the midst of pronouncing judgment, we have this amazing prophecy of Christ's birth and His ministry. Over the last two lessons, we have seen how Christ would be a shepherd king. Remember, He's going to stand and feed while we abide, which means we get to sit. He's going to stand and feed us. He is our shepherd king. He is our strength. It says that He will feed us in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the Lord His God. And He shall be great unto the ends of the earth. All the earth is going to know. And last time, we saw how Christ would be our peace. Remember that Christ being our peace, it does not mean that we have an absence of hard times. It doesn't mean that we don't have trials and tribulations and that we don't go through some testings in life. But what it does mean is through those things, we can still have peace. We can have peace that passes understanding. We can have peace that God is in control and that He knows and that He's on top of things and He's working out His plans and His purposes. We can have peace with God. What a blessing. And we, we considered the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Remember here in, in Micah, it talks about the Assyrians that come into the land and how they would tread in the palaces and, and, and come in and, and try to uh, take away their, their peace through their, their war and their fighting. And we consider the Apostle Paul how how the Assyrian here symbolically speaks of any enemy of God. We've all been there, I think. And the Apostle Paul, perhaps more than any other man, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, went through a lot of affliction. Went through a lot of trials. Went went through a lot of uh, beatings. The kind of beatings that could kill a man. And he he went through all of this stuff. We've read the passages before. And remember from that message that we had Three weeks ago, Paul gets the Macedonian call and he goes over to Macedonia. He was in God's will. It was God's will for him 
to go to Macedonia. But when he got to Macedonia, he said, Our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. All this affliction, all these trials that Paul was going through. Many people today would say, well, it must not be the will of God. Well, that's not what we find in the Bible very often. Isn't that right? We find that when the enemies are coming against us, we're often in God's will. The Apostle Paul, though he was going through it, he was right where God wanted him to be. And yet he said, there's trouble on every side. So how was Paul able to keep pressing on in the midst of all of these trials and all of these tribulations, all of this opposition from the enemy? How could he keep going? Because of the beginning of verse 5. And this man shall be the peace. Because Christ was his peace, he could keep going. Because he knew that Christ was in control, he could keep going in the face of the enemy. The enemy is most certainly in our land nationally. Would you agree with that? He's treading in our palaces even. The enemy is against this body of believers. The enemy is against your family. The enemy is against you individually. So what are you going to do when the enemy comes into your land? I'll tell you what you do is you run to your shepherd king who will feed you, who will sustain you. You go to that one who is your peace, Jesus Christ, He gives you peace that the world can't offer. He said in John 16, 33, In me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. What a blessing. Amen? So what are you going to do? You run to Christ. You know, there's never going to be a time in your life where there's a complete absence of trouble. You understand what I'm saying? There, there may be these great seasons of, of victory, as we like to call it, but I'll promise you there's trials that you're dealing with still. There's always things that are coming up. Amen? Always things coming up individually. Always things coming up in our families. Always things coming up in our church. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to pastor a church where we were all in sweet accord? That's what we're studying in the book of Acts. Amen? It's possible. <laughs> i got to be careful there. I'll get on the soapbox. You can have complete peace with Christ. So that was a recap just to get us back in the frame of mind of Micah. Let's, let's read verses 1 through 6 again. The Bible says, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth, and the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of, in the name, <laughs> in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth, and this man shall be the peace." When the Assyrians come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall lay waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. Let's pray.
Father, I ask you this morning that you would open our understanding that we might understand the Scriptures. Thank you for the Word of God. Guide us in the truth now we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Last time I didn't get to finish verse 5. The last part there of verse 5, we had to cut it short, where it says, Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. What does that mean? What, does this, what is this telling us here? Is this, is this a literal thing? We, you can find all kinds of opinions out there. I discovered that many will act eloquently on end times when it talks about seven shepherds and eight principal men. That's fine. I, I'm not against those applications and so forth. But for me personally, as of now, ask me again the next time we go through Micah. Amen, brother? As of now, when, when I study this, this is, I think it's really quite simple what this is saying. The term seven and eight, back to back, in the Bible, it's a Hebrew figure of speech. And it simply expresses fullness when you read seven and eight. What it represents is God is more than sufficient to accomplish His purposes. Okay? Matthew Poole wrote this, The number is certain, but put for an uncertain. We have a certain number, seven and eight, but it's put for an uncertain amount. He goes on to write, a determinate number is put for an indeterminate. For example, Ecclesiastes 11.2 says, Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Job 5.9 speaks in this kind of proverbial expression where it says, He shall deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven there shall no evil touch thee. And I don't know if Job was speaking at that point, sorry. Whoever's speaking there in Job chapter 5, he shall deliver thee in six troubles, in, yea, in seven there shall be no evil touch thee. And, and we see that those who God will raise up, they're going to be shepherds and principal men. And so when we talk about this ability of God to raise up as many as it takes to do what He wants to do, I believe the meaning here is God raises up church leaders, shepherds. He, re- he raises up political leaders to help fight back against the wickedness of the day. And really, it's just a matter of the people desiring what's right, depending on how God raises up and puts down. And so, these these men that are talked about here uh, being raised up, they are to bring judgment against the enemies of God. They are to bring deliverance and justice to His people. The Geneva Bible footnotes made this observation. The Messiah will be a sufficient safeguard for us, and though the enemy invades us for a time, yet will God stir up many who will be able to deliver us. We have a whole book in our Bible based upon this. It's called Judges. Those judges were deliverers. Just as spiritual wickedness is manifested physically through wicked men, right? We don't wrestle flesh and blood, but the wickedness is manifested through flesh and blood. Amen. We got some wicked people in politics. But we don't wrestle them. We wrestle spiritual wickedness in high places. And so it's manifested through flesh and blood. Likewise, righteousness of God is manifested through flesh and blood. We are the representation of Christ. Somebody say amen right there. We are Christians. We are supposed to be Christ-like. We are to show people what it means to walk in the light of His Word. 
And so just as wickedness is revealed through, through folks, so is spiritual deliverance. It is manifested through us, mostly through righteous men. But this is interesting. God can deliver his people through ungodly men. I mean, God is so far above what we think. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And, and he can use people however he sees fit. And so the Lord sends shepherds. The Bible says he gave some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He wants us grounded. He wants us secure. He wants us tethered to Christ. Those are the men, it says, who will carry you about. Cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Who's that talking about? The enemy. The Assyrian, if you will, that comes in the land. God gives us spiritual leaders to assist us to remain in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The enemy comes into our land and hopefully you'll have some spiritual leaders in your life that will say, you know what, I know the God who's controlling it all. And if you want to have peace with God, here's what you need to do. And listen, God's people need those reminders as well. None of us are immune to going into the doldrums, being discouraged at times, and we have to remember. And how do we do that? God raises up spiritual folks in our life to help us along. Godly leaders. God even raises up godly leaders in the political realm for our deliverance, and I'm thankful for that. A great example of this is Cyrus king of Persia in the Bible. He's the one that released the Jews from captivity. He's called God's anointed in Isaiah 45.1. And interestingly enough, he's also called God's shepherd in Isaiah 44.28. What does Micah say? He's going to raise up shepherds and principal men. And it doesn't necessarily have to be this shining example of righteousness. God used a Persian king in Cyrus. It might be a righteous leader, it might be a pagan leader, but God can bring deliverance whichever way He chooses. We see this cycle played out in our political system time and time again. The pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. And it's amazing in our country that we've been able to see it swing as much as we have without completely losing our country. Just in my lifetime, I think about it. Uh, we, we see this time of God's people come into power, or those who are friends of God's people, they come into power. Next election cycle comes around, the pendulum swings the other way. And now we see people that are not so friendly to Christians. More Assyrians are manifesting in the land. I got to thinking about this in my lifetime. Uh, I don't mean to make some of you feel old, but uh, I wasn't born until the days of Jimmy Carter. Amen. <laughs> and so, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, W. Bush. Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. Can you see the, the back and forth of the pendulum in those names? And how that is becoming more and more extreme. I've said recently, and I mean it with all of my heart, that we now have two ideologies which cannot coexist in this country. There is no way they can coexist. Listen, we've had 9-11 memorials yesterday, and only certain political presidents were there. The other side wasn't. We can't even come together to honor those who have died. I'm really not here to debate politics with you, but the most recent example, uh, President Barack Obama was no friend to Christians. 
and again, I don't want to debate it with you, but he wasn't a friend to Christians. The pendulum swung the other way with President Trump. You say, well, President Trump was a pagan man. He might have been, he may not have been. I know I can't stand his mouth. He's got a filthy mouth. Amen. If you watch his rallies, he'll, he'll drop some bombs in there that he shouldn't. But I know this, the man was a friend of Christians. Whether he was pagan or not, he was a friend of Christians. Did you know President Trump was the first sitting president to address the March for Life rally against abortion? He did a lot of great things for the cause of Christianity in this country. Now, what do we see? The pendulum has now swung completely the other direction. God raises up principal men and shepherds. And we're watching that play out in our day because of how our political system works. Every four years, we're going we're gonna to vote. <laughs> That's a whole other thing, amen? <laughs> we now have a president all in for abortion. And now we can say dogmatically, whether you like it or not, he is no friend of freedom. What makes the difference on the way on which the tide turns? Ultimately, we know it's God who decides. Psalm 75, 7 says, But God is the judge. He putteth down one, setteth up another. But also understand this morning, God responds to the cries of His people. You'll remember when the children of Israel went down to Egypt. God responded to the cries of His people. You see, God, He was working on a timetable behind the scenes. He had made a promise uh, to Abraham. He was working on a timetable, but to those who were living through it, it was a whole different experience for them. The Bible tells us the cries of the people came unto God, and God sent Moses to deliver the people. Why didn't God send an army? Why didn't God send Himself? Why didn't God send an angel? Why did He send Moses? Because God said, I'm going to raise up shepherds and principal men. And, and He raised up Moses to rose up, raised up, raiseth up. We'll use the KJV, amen. Um, and and he, he brought Moses up to go and deliver the people. Moses was his shepherd and principal man. Throughout the book of Judges, we see how God raised up shepherds and principal men. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Barak, with the help of Deborah and Yael, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And then God raised up prophets and kings. Hebrews 11, 33 and 34 says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in, in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. <laughs> they subdued kingdoms. God in His mercy and in His grace raises up those of whom the world is not worthy. He's going to continue to do so. So long as there is a desire by folks to obtain a good report through faith, God will continue to raise up deliverers. Now, where I believe we need to be cautious is not losing faith. Because the fact is we may not live long enough to see the deliverance that some principal shepherds some shepherds and principal men are working. We may not live to see that deliverance. So we can't lose faith through the process of this pendulum swinging back and forth. 
God will bring in time, in His time, He'll bring the shepherds and the principal men. The children of Israel began to be enslaved in Egypt when there arose a Pharaoh which knew not Joseph. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. There was a lot of generations in there. It's interesting how the Bible in one verse takes us 400 years, you know. Be like the founding of Jamestown to today. How many years has it been? I don't even know. In one verse. And so we just kind of gloss over it sometimes. But there was a lot of folks in there. A lot of generations that lived in that 400 years. They never saw the deliverance of God. They never lived long enough. They, they knew that God had foretold Abraham of a day coming, but they didn't live to see it. Likewise, when the prophets foretold of the deliverance to come through the Messiah, they and the people never lived long enough to see it. Isaiah talking about the virgin birth, never got to see it. I don't know if God let them peek down, but from an earthly standpoint, he didn't get to see it. Even John the Baptist the last of the prophets who looked up and saw Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world was beheaded before Christ went to the cross and was raised again. Amen. He didn't get to see that. Jesus told His disciples in Luke 10, 24, For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. And Jesus is saying, look, you're blessed because you're getting to see some stuff that all these guys wanted to see and never got to see. It was 4,000 years from when God said the promised seed was on its way until He arrived. Boy, that's a lot. We can look to the founding of our nation. There were many patriots who God raised up that never got to see America founded. They were killed. Or they died. Just this week, I was studying Jonathan Mayhew, and I recommend you do. He was one of the preachers in the 1750s that just set this country on fire for the cause of freedom and liberty. And from his message in 1750, there arose the statement, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. It became a rallying cry for the American Revolution. It came from a preacher. We can just look to our founding and see this. There were many good Baptists who stood for liberty. They were killed. They never got to see the protections under the First Amendment of the Constitution. Put there by a Baptist. But they stood. You hear what I'm saying? They stood. And we cannot lose faith, but we have to stand. Well, it's going to cost me, yeah. But do you want your children your grandchildren to have hope? Have a chance to have liberty and freedom? Listen, we're on the cusp, folks. I'm fighting it. Man, I want to just let loose on this topic. Our president has absolutely no right to mandate anybody get any vaccine. Whether you're for the vaccine or not, if you love freedom, that ought to infuriate you. To try to tell companies, if you employ over 100, now you have to get... Who does he think he is? Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. That's what we fought for once upon a time. Amen. Well, I get stirred up over this. Amen. The reason for our founding is that God raised up principal men and shepherds who stood for righteousness. They thundered from the pulpit the Word of God and how God is for liberty and justice. Particularly in Massachusetts and Virginia. Deliverance will come when shepherds and principal men 
are on the same page, speaking the same message. This is important you get this, because I believe this is the disconnect in the day in which we live. Our problems in America today is there is not a blended voice between pulpit and politics. We have so bought the lie that it has to be separated that we dare not mention it. This whole thing about separation of church and state. It wasn't to kick church out of government. It was to keep the government from instituting an established religion. But because of that phrase and being taken out of context, now we've kicked God out of the government. We've kicked Him out of our public schools. What did we expect to happen back there in the 60s when that happened? I'm thankful there's still many good pulpits aflame today. But somehow many have believed we are never to mix faith and politics. God's plan all along was for there to be harmony between the two. Read your Old Testament. It's obvious. God wanted leaders who were righteous. He wanted prophets that were righteous to have people that were righteous. I'm simply saying we live in perilous times. It's likely only to get worse. Just look at other countries. Prime Minister of Australia threatening if you don't get the vaccine, you won't receive health care. You want socialism? There you go. That's socialism. We don't know when the Lord's going to return. When He does, He's going to put down all rule and authority. Amen. But in the meantime, let's not lose faith and let's keep standing for what is right. Who knows? The Lord may be merciful and raise up some shepherds and principal men who once again have a national voice who will work righteousness for the deliverance of God's people. We may not live to see a return to godly liberties, but it would be great if we would stand and fight in hopes that our heritage can one day enjoy liberty. I'm glad that our forefathers fought for freedom from tyranny back there in the 1700s because it's benefited this man who they never met. We've been so blessed to live in America. What are we going to stand for? Let's bring this back to our text here as I have five minutes left according to that corny little buzzer. Ultimately, what this last phrase in verse 5 means, and I like this, at no time will God's children ever be forsaken. At no time will we ever be out of God's watch care. Because of this truth, we see again how this man, Jesus Christ shall be the peace. John 14, 27, you know it. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now real quick, because I've been threatening to finish these set of verses the last two messages. Verse 6 here. They shall lay, they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall He deliver us from the Assyrian when He cometh into our land and when He treadeth within our borders. These shepherds and principal men who God is going to raise up as He sees fit will defeat the enemy. They shall lay waste, it says, the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod. There would be deliverance. The land of Nimrod, I believe here, is just a a reference to Babylon. The Babylonian system. Go study that out. You'll you'll see that it, it ties with Babylon. And, and there would be 
deliverance from this Babylonian system. And that day's coming when the Lord comes back. And we could get into the, re- the weeds right there, but I'm going to resist that due to our timing. And because both the Assyrians and the Babylonians were the principal enemies of Israel when this prophecy was written, I believe it's now used for us to illustrate the enemy of God's people. That's how I've been using this. Matthew Henry wrote, Those that threaten to ruin, those who threaten to ruin, um, threaten ruin. It's hard not to say ruin. Some of you Southerners got that figured out. Those that threaten ruin to the church of God hasten ruin to themselves, and their destruction is the church's salvation. Let me say that again because that was brutal. Those that threaten ruin to the church of God hasten ruin to themselves. And their destruction is the church's salvation. That's really good. The bottom line is this. We have victory in Christ. Steve Perkins mentioned at Family Camp, we don't fight for victory, but we fight from the position of victory. Romans 8.31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Luke 10, 19 and 20, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Listen, come what may, my name's written in glory. What's the worst you can do? Threaten me with going home? In closing, because Christ is our peace, we can keep pressing on in the face of the enemy. God's never going to leave us nor forsake us. We have victory in Christ. What a blessing. This is such a great prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad the Lord allowed me to study it and share it with you. I hope it's been a blessing. We'll keep pressing in Micah 5 the next time. Let's pray.